day three of the Darwin Festival at the University of Cambridge and we're celebrating Darwin's 200th birthday. I'm Diana O'Carroll from The Naked Scientists and we're here to bring the best of the festival to you. Last night saw Darwin with a difference. Eminem, eat your simian mammalian heart out. Here's the ABC's David Fisher to explain more. The week here at Cambridge has seen mostly older, scholarly types in panel discussions or alone at the lectern analysing, speculating, debating and theorising over every nuance of Charlie Darwin's existence. So for a summary of the week, here's rap artist Barbara Brinkman who covers every angle of every session in his hip-hop show The Rap Guide to Evolution. What you know about natural selection? Go ahead and ask a question and see where the answer gets you. Try being passive-aggressive or try smashing heads in and see which tactic brings your plans to fruition. And if you have an explanation of mine, then you're wasting your time because the best watchmaker is blind. It takes a certain base kind of impatient mind to explain away nature with intelligent design. But the truth shall set you free from those useless superstitious beliefs in a literal Adam and Eve and that Edenic myth because their family tree is showing some genetic drift. Take it from this bald-headed non-celibate monk with the lyrical equivalent of an elephant's trunk. It's time to elevate your mind state and celebrate your kinship with the primates. The weak and the strong. Who got it going on? We lived in the dark for so long. The weak and the strong. Darwin got it going on. Creationism is dead wrong. Tell him, Dawkins. This Canadian rapper is no scientist. His area is medieval literature. After applying rap to the Canterbury Tales, he was approached by a microbial genomist who asked if he could do for Darwin what he did for Chaucer. Barber read his way through a pile of books on evolutionary biology and outspawned his Darwin show covering every aspect of the great man's work. And according to Barber, there's a curious similarity between the creation, sorry, the growth, the evolution of an artistic work and any living thing. When I first started writing this show back in January, early drafts of the script sounded a little bit like this. Yo, yo, the origin of species ain't no feces, dog. Believe me. Yeah. And, and then, and that was all I could think of. And then I thought, I thought, well, maybe my show needs to get rewritten. And sometimes people ask me, how does your show get written? Like this, performance, feedback, revision. And how do I generally develop my lyricism? Kind of like this, performance, feedback, revision. And how do human beings ever learn to do anything? Like this, performance, feedback, revision. And evolution is kind of just an algorithm, isn't it? That goes like this, performance, feedback, revision. So really the genetic code of every living thing was written like this, performance, feedback, revision. See, the genes are like a text with a thousand pages, and revisions occur in the random changes that come from mutations. And then when they see the light, that's the performance. That's the phenotype. And natural selection, that's the feedback side. That's about who survives and whose genes catch rides in the next generation. Yes, what I'm saying is that a rap performance like this We'll be publishing the full version of Brinkman's show on our site, thenakedscientist.com, at the end of this week. Now, while we celebrate Darwin at the festival, it's worth remembering that he was only human. So I spoke to geneticist Steve Jones, who explained a little bit more about the celebrity of Darwin. 
Well, he is a celebrity, and he's, I mean, in some ways, Darwin himself doesn't matter because if he hadn't done the work, somebody else certainly would. And in many ways, Darwin was wrong. That's because he was a scientist. Uh, philosophers are never wrong. Religious people are never wrong. That's the difference between them. I think I don't really mind people looking up to Darwin as a human being because he wasn't that almost unique thing. He was a nice scientist. And there aren't many of those around. Particularly nice, good scientists that are almost unknown. So as a Victorian figure, I think he's worth celebrating. And his science is worth celebrating. Do you think that's something that's true of science in general? Do you think a lot of it is just being in the right place at the right time? I think all of it is fundamentally being in the right place at the right time. Newton famously said, if I've seen further, it's my standing on the shoulders of giants. I once saw a review of um, a book by Watson, and Watson and Quickfame, in which I said, if Watson has seen further, it's by standing on the toes of giants, <laughs> because he <laughs> annoyed most people around him. So that's true, but it does help to have a few giants around, yeah. and it's clear that Darwin was one of them. You mentioned that not very many scientists are nice. So, <laughs> percentage-wise, how many would you say are nice and how many are nasty? <laughs> well, I'm not sure I, mean, I really mean that. I think as, as people, most scientists are perfectly respectable, unless they're in Cambridge, of course, and they're constantly sticking their knives on each other's backs. But it's pretty clear, actually, that when it comes to their professional lives, most scientists are pretty bitter, twisted and guarded about their own work. And, you know, I mean, some are more generous than others, but particularly in a field like genetics, which is, which is moving remarkably quickly, and which is run by technology and by money, it really drives you um, if you've got some cash, if you haven't. And clearly people who don't have the cash get very bitter about those who do. That's inevitable. I remember in the days, the beginning of the days of the Human Genome Project, which is, must be nearly 15 years ago now, lots of people, myself in my own obscure way too, going around moaning and grinding their teeth and saying, this is a complete waste of money, we shouldn't be doing this, you should give the money to us instead. Well, we were wrong. However, having said that, sometimes they do give money to people who shouldn't have it, and people who should have it don't give money. And so inevitably that raises quite a lot of tension. And I think that's one reason why it's not, it's not that scientists aren't nice, but it's not a very nice profession to be in. Steve Jones, Professor of Genetics at the University College London, and he was talking about the cutthroat world of scientific research. Perhaps we can look back at Darwin's 19th century world as a simpler time for science when researchers could even use themselves as guinea pigs. David Fisher spoke to Jim Moore of the Open University. Well, Darwin's most famous experiments, the ones he's written about in a series of books, uh, he played with plants, he played sexual tricks on them, he got them cross-fertilizing, he got different insects going to them or not going to them. But he also was interested in breeding of every kind, how things reproduce, how living bodies are generated, and he viewed his family and friends, and his children particularly, as little loved organisms. And in fact, he was conducting a breeding experiment with his wife and producing 10 children. Uh, he made observations on his children as they were growing up, and he kept the record in a little book. He was obsessive, yes, but he was also curious about the sameness of the different forms of life and how all things uh, tend to behave in the same way, the animals on the one hand and plants on the other. So if I had put it to him directly, are you concerned about your children's breeding? I'm sure he would have said yes. Uh, my wife and I are first cousins, and we're producing children that could be defective because it's well known that the offspring of first cousin marriages, for example, plants, first cousin plants often produce shorter offspring than plants which aren't related to each other, which are fertilized. So Darwin was looking for evidence through nature as to whether or not his own choice of marriage and reproduction was going to be successful. 
That was the OU's Professor of Science History, Jim Moore, and why perhaps you shouldn't get too friendly with your family. Mutation is a key part of evolution, and sometimes, when sat back in a comfy chair with the central heating on full blast, it pops into mind that maybe we aren't subject to selection pressures. Laura Sol asked biological anthropologist Jaume Bertrand Petit if this is really the case. So one of the main points I want to address is that we have been hearing quite a lot on natural selection and adaptation, but the main question is what was not known at Darwin's time? So the main point is that we should much more address the basic molecular basis for biology, for evolution, for adaptation to understand really the evolutionary process. Is there strong evidence to support natural selection occurring in humans today? Sure it is. Uh, what is very nice, and this is something that has changed a lot, is that we can see the footprints of natural selection in the genome. And this is something very new and perhaps not very widely known, that natural selection, you don't have to see a full animal to act and to die just give me a few DNA sequences and I will tell where and how much selection has been shaping the extant variation in the genome. What would be examples of the selection pressures that could be acting upon us at the moment? All the selection pressures and all the adaptation must have a footprint at the molecular, at the genetic level. If we don't know them, is another issue. And one of the main problems we are facing right now is that we do not have a clear relationship between phenotype and genotype. This is something that biology is building right now. We have many cases in which one or just a few genes have been involved where clearly the footprint of natural selection has been recognized. One of the, the main problems we are facing right now is that for complex adaptation, we do not have the molecular and genetic basis. But we have for a few interesting cases. Jaume Bertrand Petit, Professor of Biology at the University of Pompo Favre, and why we're a collection of interesting cases. We've already met evolutionary rap, but now let's turn to a more sedate expression of evolution in the arts. One of Darwin's own descendants, Ruth Bedell, performed a reading of some of her verse. I've called it a pigeon fancier's manual. This horrid species thing, he's got to write it new and shorter, just, just summarising his views. My rag of a book, it cost me so much labour I almost hate it. They build a billiard room beside the study. He pots coloured balls like sweets as a rest from work. She protects him from visitors and relatives. No one's ill. They take a family holiday on the Isle of Wight. He finishes in April. The publisher's reader says, Make it a manual on pigeon breeding. Forget the rest. Everyone loves pigeons. It'll be reviewed by every journal in the land. John Murray knows a good thing when he sees one. He'll do a small edition, but it's still too long. Edit, vomit, edit, shadows in the dawn. Resist the lure of ever more evidence. He sends it and disappears for a water cure. Severely ill. In November, at 15 shillings, it sells out in one go. 
Ruth Bedell, a poet currently installed at Christ College, Cambridge. And she wasn't alone in the festival, as Chris Smith discovered. A uniform hush. He started to list mavericks, mystics, clerics and beatniks, thick-set sidekicks, tactics for the checklist. Never have I before seen such a mix of protesters. Commanders from the Met in the briefing nodded. Image flicks between bishops and actresses, upset anarchists from Kensington in Denim, bloggers and vegans known at the outset. I'm talking today with We've Robert Whittle, who's a retired geneticist a from the University of Sussex, who's latterly become interested in poetry. I heard you reading a bit of your poem there. What's this all about? It started life in my retirement being curious about doing something quite different uh, with language write, writing. And, and um, in a poetry form workshop, I was introduced to um, Dante's poetic structure called the Terzarima. And the exercise was to go away and write a brief piece about something. He said, you're a scientist. Why don't you have a go at science? I came back with something about Darwin. And now it's got to 8,000 words. And it's a narrative. If you have a poetic form, it rather disciplines the way you talk. Sometimes it just strangles the, the ideas, but other times it causes me to express things in a different way. And I wanted to see whether in this poetic form I could actually discuss profound ideas and issues in science that scientists think they understand but always have difficulty getting over to other people. But I've had, I've had complimentary comments this morning from uh, uh, a friend of mine and participator in this conference, Paul Nurse, who, who's, who's been reading it, and I was pleased that a, a man of his stature and activity remembered that I'd sent him the poem and appreciated it. Robin Whittle on the more poetic parts of science and the arts. That's it for Darwin Daily Wednesday. Any more thoughts or comments can be entered in our forum at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum, and we'll be back tomorrow with a roundup of Thursday's events.